0: We've all got old stuff that we should toss, but an old 401k, make sure it keeps working for you. A Fidelity rollover IRA has no account fees or minimums to open. An easy-to-follow rollover process makes it simple to get started in under 15 minutes. Plus, you'll have access to a rollover specialist. Whether you've switched jobs or are just organizing your finances, learn more at fidelity.com rollover. Consider all your options and the applicable fees and features of each before moving your retirement assets. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC.
1: You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer,
2: more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We love science on this show. We talk about it all the time. But we are also aware that science is done by scientists who are flawed human beings like all of us. And so once in a while, we go back to the scientific method and question whether it can be improved, especially in specific domains. On several episodes of the podcast, we've covered the replication crisis. The fact that sometimes scientific studies, which have become part of the canon, which have been cited thousands of times, turn out to not be replicable. What does that mean for the original findings? What does it mean moving forward? Well, on this week's interview, we talked to Stuart Ritchie, who was one of the pioneers in the replication crisis in psychology, questioning some of the major findings, When it comes to understanding how human biases, misunderstandings, and deceptions can undermine science, Stuart has been thinking about this and working in this area for a long time. He's recently come out with a book called Science Fictions, How Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype Undermine the Search for Truth. Stuart Ritchie, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you for having me on.
2: You actually start your the preface of your book with a quote from the 17th century, which I found shocking. <laughs> the fact that the confirmation bias we've known about for 400 years, I mean, it was like 1620, I
3: think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, around about that, I think. Yeah, 1620, yeah. So it's, it's from Francis Bacon. And, uh, and and yeah, so I mean, I've got it here. I can read the book. It is the peculiar and perpetual error of the human understanding to be more moved and excited by affirmatives than by negatives.
2: Amazing. We've known to have 400 years, and yet here we are, still <laughs> yeah, making yeah, the same errors over and over and over again, even scientists who know better. Uh, and I think that when a lot of people think about the current replication crisis in science, which we've talked about a fair amount on the show— I think I think there's this kind of sense that there's a number of different forces at play, but that confirmation bias, especially when a person has a theory, a pet theory that they really want to prove, I think that that sort of is 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 a way that a lot of people think about why science goes wrong. But what I liked about your book is that it it sort of says, yeah, acknowledges the existence of the confirmation bias, but really lays out a systematic bias uh, that that makes it almost seem impossible for science to get it right under the current circumstances.
3: Yeah, it's the uh it's the the incentive system that I talk about, uh the incentives of science and 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 how they um push researchers not towards discovering true things about the world, but about towards uh just publishing papers, publishing papers constantly. And um and of course then that's where the, the confirmation bias comes in because the type of papers that people want to publish are of course ones that have nice exciting positive results. So we're uh, uh we have this kind of confirmation bias towards Statistically significant results, and so that's where you see the biases coming in, and uh, you know, the, all the p-hacking stuff that I talk about when you're trying to get that p-value below 0.05, and um, and uh, uh, that's where other kinds of biases come in, like like you mentioned, you know, the pet theory uh, type of bias. You know, there's room for political biases. There's room for just wanting to discover something to help that sort of bias, uh, uh, and and and, so th- and and all these biases would be would almost be fine. You know, it would be, there would be part of human nature and that'd be fine if we had a system of peer review that really stopped these things from getting into the journals, that stopped biased papers from getting into the journals, that uh, that allowed papers that maybe don't have a positive result or don't have an exciting new finding and just have, you know, robust, normal, boring science, if it gave them a fair shake. But unfortunately, as you say, the system is, is, is really not set up to, to, to work like that.
2: Yet I remember in the 2000s, when I was a graduate student, I really felt like it was incredibly rigorous, that in order to get published, like you really had to make sure that your data were not flawed, that your, you know, design was excellent, uh, you know, that, that, that you had sort of accounted for all of these biases. And I remember when, so I'm just going to delve into a little bit of a personal story. And then I really want to, Because it it dovetails so much with what I think probably led you to to write this book, which is the Daryl Bem experience that you had. So in 2011, I was actually a co-host of a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network, bear with me, called Miracle Detectives. And my job was to be the scientific foil partnered with a sort of true believer in miracles journalist. Uh, and so we were, we were traveling around the country trying to investigate whether people's claims of miracles that they had ex- experienced were in fact true or whether they could be explained more simply in another way. And so, there, were, I mean, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. There are a couple of things that I, that I sort of came out of that experience knowing or thinking. And one was that people, at least the ones that we, uh, uh, the vast majority of the people that we talked to just genuinely wanted to know the truth uh, they they were not trying to fool us. They were not trying to, you know, make money off of you know some some fraud. They they genuinely thought that that what they had experienced was a miracle, and they were curious to find out if if that was true. So one of the episodes was about precognition. This idea that uh, somehow there's a actually not not one, a couple of them. So that's this idea of feature, that we can actually either see the future or see things that we can't see with our eyes. Like, um, for example, there was this one woman that I interviewed who had this technique that apparently was, um, was actually pioneered by the Department of Defense where, you know, during the Cold War, where it was like you were spying from your couch, you know, like you could just think really hard and and kind of spy on Russia. Sounds, sounds, sounds ridiculous. But, you know, she... So one of the things that she did is that, you know, she we had a bunch of photographs and we put them into a manila envelope. And then she would, with just not seeing the photographs, but just, you know, looking at the envelope, tell us what was on those pictures. And so she would, it was, you know, she would, she would list out all these different, you know, aspects of the picture And it was this, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of, yeah, this this precognitive ability of hers, which even she says she doesn't understand how it works. And then, but, you know, basically it's it's the same as a cold reading technique where it's a lot, she puts out a lot of information and you as the observer tend to pick out the things that are in line with what you're seeing. So it's confirmation bias. But in any case, there was another one where there was a woman who had a dream that she was going to be in a car crash and then the car crash happened. So a lot of these things we, we talked about. And I remember, like, in each case... I felt pretty confident that I could explain what was happening on the basis of understanding the confirmation bias on understanding sort of how the human mind works how you know we're really terrible at remembering things and then, right around that time, Daryl Bem's paper was published. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my co-host uh, was delighted. So why don't you <laughs> tell us about this paper and how it left me gobsmacked and, you know, really out on a limb on this reality TV show?
3: Well, yeah, it left everyone gobsmacked. And actually, I, you know, I don't think it maybe should have left everyone so gobsmacked because if you look through the psychological literature... And mainstream psychological literature, you can find quite a lot of examples of parapsychology, so like ESP research. Um, but this was one that was particularly prominent. It was in a particularly mainstream journal, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which is like one of those journals where if you get a publication there, then it's you know one of your star CV items, you know. And
2: it's a it's a career maker. I mean, I think that was, yes. what was shocking to me. It's one thing to, you know, you know, he would he would give me all these citations from journals that I knew just weren't that high quality, but this was JPSP, like this is yeah yeah, yeah. yeah a career making journal.
3: Well, like pops up every so often this this parapsychology thing in in, in good journals. I mean, even you know just, just recently, just a couple of years ago, there was one in the American Psychologist, a paper that was uh, that was saying that you know that came to the conclusion that psychic powers are real. They pop up every so often. But anyway, the, the in, in 2011, this one was particularly um, particularly prominent, and I think it was particularly prominent because it um, it was really simple and easy to understand. He had just taken very simple psychology lab experiments and like reversed the time uh, uh, sequence of those experiments. So um, there was one where, the, the one that we tried to replicate, which is how I start the book, the, uh, it goes like this. So normally in, in a psychology experiment, you would, um, in, a, in like a memory experiment, you would give someone a list of words to, 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 to memorize. And then you would show them, you know, maybe you'd you show them half of those words again, And then you would give them the test. And then lo and behold, you would find out that they would remember better the words that they'd been shown again. Right. That makes perfect sense. But what he did in this experiment was he showed them a list of words, then immediately gave them a test. Then he showed them half the words again. So he like shifted the time sequence of that experiment round. And um, what he showed apparently in this paper was that the participants remembered the words that they were about to see better than the ones they, they'd they only seen once and would only ever see once. So as I say in the book, it's like you study for an exam and then you sit the exam. And then after you leave the exam hall, you like go and pick up your book again and 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 read, uh, you know, study even more. And that studying like goes back in time and helps you on the exam itself. Um, and so there were like nine experiments like this, all of which were quite straightforward and simple, but with this kind of mind-blowing kind of um, shift in the time sequence. So like the cause had to come um, uh, after the effect. Yeah. And, and, you know, even
2: Stephen Colbert was interested in one of these. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) He
3: had Daryl Bem on uh, to talk about time-traveling porn, which is the (laughs) one where people were more likely to randomly choose a little um, curtain on a screen that was, they they were told that there was a picture behind one. And if there was porn behind the picture, um, they didn't just get it 50 fifty. they got it like 53.1% of the time and that was statistically significant and so on. And so they they um, they uh, that that caused a lot of hilarity and so on. And the idea was that you have this like sense, this sort of um, this sort of uh, uh, psychic erotic um, uh, perception of like something that's about to happen to you that's going to be um, erotic or and the opposite was that you would um, be more likely to to avoid clicking on the um, the picture that would turn out to be a violent picture. So you have this precognitive sense for bad, violent things that are going to happen to you in, in in future. Um so there were nine of those experiments in the paper. So that's another reason that it was really prominent was because it wasn't just one little experiment. It was a whole suite of experiments that he had been working on for, you know, I think most of most of the decade previous to the publication, um, with you know hundreds of participants, Cornell undergraduate students over many years. And um uh, and that's, you know, the, the overall conclusion of the paper was, yes, there's evidence here for psychic abilities. Um, and um, so, so what we thought we would do in, in, in our uh, labs so in my, uh, I was just a PhD student at the time, but I managed to book some lab space and we thought we would replicate that one about the words, the memory uh, experiment. And then um, a couple of my colleagues, uh, Richard Wiseman and Chris French, um who are at their respective universities, they set up the same experiment again, and we did exactly the same test because you know to give him uh, his his due Daryl Bem put the statistical program that he used to run the experiment online so we could run exactly the same thing again using the same words, the same presentation, absolutely everything, so it was like a direct replication attempt of his of his paper um and uh or of that one experiment in the paper, I should say. And we found we found nothing. We didn't find any psychic effect. We found that the, the, the words that they were about to see were remembered just as well as the ones that they weren't about to see. So there wasn't any, like, time reversal phenomenon happening in our sample. Um, and that's all very well. Like, even if it was real, you might expect that, you know, some people would not replicate it. But the point I'm trying to make in the book is that we sent this to the journal that... Um, that it was originally published in, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, JPSP. Um, And they said, no, sorry, we don't even consider publishing replication attempts. We're not going to send this out for review kind of on principle. We don't, we're not interested in replication attempts. And that was my first like introduction to like how um, obsessed with novelty and excitement people are. Like even if it's a really bizarre thing like ESP, Um, The journals are interested in in, in publishing that um, and and won't even consider publishing a, a study that comes along and says, well, we ran exactly the same experiment, so it's methodologically just as rigorous. Um, but we didn't find anything at all, and probably ESP is is, is not happening in, the, in in this sample. Do you think they so, would? Have, um, sorry,
2: do you think they would have considered it if you had found that you had actually replicated it, or do you think that they were? Well, just they like-
3: said they, they said to us in the uh, in the email, um, we're not interested in replication attempts, positive or negative. So they just that's just not interested in in that same experiment again. They want to move on onto something else, onto something new and exciting and shiny, and not. Let's just check whether that works,
2: <laughs> and I think that's an important point because we don't want to say that this is just entirely due to publication bias, right that 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 only positive or or only significant results are being published in that journal. That's not true. Um, it's just that they don't want to necessarily publish in this case they they at least in two thousand and or how however, how long does because i I guess what I'm asking is, have they changed their tune <laughs> since yes, the replication? They have. Yeah. So- yes,
3: they have. And and uh, in the last, I don't know, I can't remember when they made this change, but it was in the last, maybe the last five years or so. So this was in 2011. But in, in the last five years, they have, um, now it's on their website that they actively say, we will consider replication studies. So I think the whole series of events that were kicked off by the, you know, the the, the BEM story and um, a whole bunch of other um, uh, things that kind of happened to happen around about that same time so there was like a big fraud case uh, the diedrich staple fraud case and there was the 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 priming replication failure as well of one of the big priming studies um yeah, all tell that us happened that around one too <laughs> yeah well that's that's that paper that um we uh, uh were all taught in undergrad like I remember being taught it as an undergrad psychology student um and this isn't a parapsychology claim uh, at all it's nothing like that but it, it, it isn't like an unconscious psychology claim. And uh, you know, some of us would would uh, um, some some crueler people may argue that some of the the the, the, the weirder priming effects might be might be uh, actually you know put into the same bracket as parapsychology because they seem so implausible on their on their face. But there was for a while this whole thing in psychology of 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 what has been called social priming. Some people don't agree with that uh, title, but the idea was that kind of unconscious influences have this massive effect on our behaviour and our perceptions and our feelings and towards other people and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and so this particular study was one where um, people were, uh, participants were sat in a room and it was again, it was just like words on a computer screen. And they had to um, fill in the word in, in a in an in a, um, incomplete sentence. And um, in one case, they got lots and lots of words that were all related to older people. So words like grey and, I don't know, Zimmer and I think one of the words was Florida because in the U.S. apparently that's associated with older people. It doesn't like to me. That doesn't uh, give me that uh, association, but um, apparently uh, that that's what it was. So um, the words like that, and, and 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 the control group just had completely random words and the um so the 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 idea was that the people who had been exposed to the words to do with old people walked more slowly out of the lab after they'd finished the experiment than the ones who had just seen random words and they were timed by the experimenters on stopwatches and they, they walked more slowly down the corridor and um uh, and so that it was this as I say, it was part of this whole research um, program where lots of um weird and uh all these all these weird uh unconscious effects can happen like um uh if you're if you're holding a, a, a cup that, that's full of warm uh, uh liquid rather than one that's full of cold liquid you're more likely to feel warmth towards your uh towards your friends so you'll rate, you'll rate your friendships as more fulfilling um and, and, and because it activates the concept of warmth and it's this link between like the literal warmth and the metaphorical warmth in our, in our minds and so someone, this someone case, it who's was never
2: the... been to a pub
3: <laughs> <laughs> very true okay, very sorry, true go ahead uh, uh, uh so in this idea it was like the, the the link between it was like activated the concept of being old in your head and so you walked more slowly and anyway in 2012 there was a study that came out that really um threw that into question and and, and uh in particular because they had instead of getting um their experimenters to measure the walking speed with a stopwatch they had infrared beams that the people broke so it was like a more objective way of measuring the speed of the walking out of the out of the door and um uh they found they they didn't find any effect in 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 that experiment um and weirdly you know this this was the first time that anyone had sort of directly replicated that and there there had been lots of kind of what what were kind of in a slightly. a euphemistic way called conceptual replication, so like studies that kind of did something similar but not exactly the same. So there'd been a whole research program of this kind of stuff, but it was never exactly testing whether this particular study replicated. Um, and and so because of that, and because of Daryl Bem, and because of this uh, fraud case that also came up at the same time, I think that was what was the, that was kind of the initial spur of the whole replication crisis idea. And and since then, um, things have changed a lot in psychology. Uh, I think it's it would be unfair to argue that you know that things are are, are just the same. I think we've still got an, an awful long way to go, and I think a lot of other fields are realizing that they have these problems too. It's just that they've not investigated them as systematically as we have in in, in, in psychology, and not done as much kind of soul searching um, as, as 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 we have.
2: In the priming replication you know you you have a very kind of clear idea of how the first study went wrong right there's this, or at least as, as far as we can tell that the the, the method of the st- of using a stopwatch builds in potential experimental bias or at least more noise than something that is more objective and so you could argue well maybe that's why they found this spurious effect what do you think is wrong with the bem studies
3: well i th- that's that's another interesting question because again to give the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, they're due. They weren't interested in publishing a replication study, but they did publish a kind of statistical critique at the same time from some uh, Bayesian authors who were interested in like reanalyzing the BEM study in a statistical, in a different statistical framework. So they ran Bayesian statistics and they said, you know, overall it produces kind of just very weak evidence. And there's a bit of argument there because they had kind of because, of course, with Bayesian statistics, you can start with a different prior. So you can say, well, I'm a skeptic, so I'm going to need a lot more evidence to to overcome my previous skeptical beliefs about psi. Uh, that is, you know, the ESP, psychic powers. Um, and uh, uh, so they kind of came up with that. So there's a bit of subjectivity involved there. So, you know, their argument would be the standard way that psychologists analyze data using p-values and t-tests and all the kind of standard frequentist statistics is inadequate and comes up with lots of false positive results and doesn't give us a good um idea of what research is 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 really convincing and compelling and what research is just kind of is just kind of um, no no better than no better than than just kind of an anecdote really so that's that's their answer to it um that's the bayesian answer i mean the other the other answer would be to look at the actual Um, the data that BEM had gathered and there was kind of strange, unexplained inconsistencies in um, the sample size, for instance. So in some experiments, there's 50 participants, in some there's 100, in some there's 150. And it's kind of um, consistent with someone who runs sets of 50 participants. Uh, So runs 50, then checks the statistical significance, doesn't find anything, so runs another 50 and then checks again, runs another 50 and checks again, and eventually then, you know, stops when they get the significant results. and this is something you can do completely unconsciously. This isn't like a, you know, a fraudulent way of doing it. This is just something people people can do if they're not paying attention and they haven't like preset their sample. Um, so that's one suggestion for how there might have been kind of false positive results discovered in discovered in the experiment. Um, uh, Ben says that he didn't, you know, avoid publishing any other um you know any other results so it's it's not like um or at least you know taking him as word it's not like there's lots of other negative studies out there um but it is a bit um again some other people have pointed out that it is a bit odd that like uh, i think all eight of the nine experiments in his study were statistically significant and um that that's a bit of a you know it, it, in a world where there's just a kind of small effect of of psi you would probably expect something to You'd probably expect more of those findings to be non-significant, even if there really was an effect, just because of the noisiness of all this kind of data that you're bringing in. So there's a kind of indication there that maybe you know some of the statistical analyses were um, were not as 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 uh, as strong or as conservative as they could. And then su- supporting that, a lot of the the studies used um, uh, used a one-tailed uh, uh, t-test, so or one-tailed p-value. So they're um, so essentially they're they're. Uh, kind of stacking the deck in favor of getting a positive result, or you're being a lot more liberal about the result that you're getting um, uh, rather than you know, for something which is as implausible theoretically as as Cy, I think you'd probably want to be as conservative as you can with your statistics. And he was kind of being the opposite. So, and there's various other reasons. Uh, uh, with you know, if you look in the specifics of the of, of the data, um, nothing. But 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 that's the point, right? Nothing that would count as fraud or manipulation or fabrication or anything like that. This is all just normal stuff that psychologists do, did, and did and do with their um, with their research data. And that's another reason that the BEM paper is so fascinating is, you know, you, you, anyone can come along and say, well, look, if you just carry on with what you're doing, then you get results that say that undergraduates are psychic. And, you know, is that really a situation that you think psychology should be in?
2: I mean, to me, it, 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 these, these examples really strike me as a vestige of how psychology was conducted when we just didn't have a lot of tools. So for example, we didn't, you know, statistics are pretty uncomplicated. We didn't have the ability to test thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of participants. Um, you know, 50 participants in a in a study like this was considered actually a pretty decent sample size. And nowadays we're we're applying the the ability that we have to like sort of you know use bigger data sets. But we're still sometimes using these old psychological statistical tools, which just aren't appropriate for those new conditions.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that's come out in the replication crisis is that, you know, we've really we've realized that we need to kind of um, we need to get our house in order in terms of running adequate statistics, registering them beforehand. So you're not just um, you know, I often say this, I often say that if if you just if you just bumped into a random person on the street and said to them, do you think that a scientists just plan out everything they do beforehand they write down the you know the analysis they're gonna do and then they collect their data and then they test that analysis and then and then see if it works or B they just get their data and they kind of decide when they get their data what they're gonna do and they sort of, uh, let kind of muck around with statistics and do a few different things until they find something that kind of makes sense to them, and then they publish that. I think obviously everyone would say, "Well, it's a." Surely it's a. It's not b. It's, that would be really sloppy if they did b. But I think most scientists do b. I think most scientists basically they have a vague idea in their head of what they're going to test before they test it, and then they get the data and they kind of muck about with it. Um, and I don't mean that again. Again, I don't mean that in a in a um, in a fraudulent. Sort of sense. I'm not saying they muck about with the data in a, in a dishonest way or anything, but they just don't really have a plan, and they just kind of come to the data and they have a look around. Um, and uh, I think that is underrated by psychologists as a way of producing false positive results. And I think that's something that we've kind of realised in the in the replication crisis and in a lot of the discussion about p hacking or whatever you want to call it, questionable research practices, um, which are called questionable because they're not fraudulent; they're just they're just things which non-fraudulent, honest researchers do, but they kind of fool themselves that they're okay. Um, and um, and you know, you mentioned the small sample size as well. That's another thing with having low statistical power. Having a whole field that's based on studies that are really small and have low statistical power is going to lead to lots of false positive results, um, uh, as well as false negative results too. I mean, it has a kind of double-edged sword effect where your your um, the effects you do find are are probably way too big and are kind of fluke findings, but you also miss out on lots of on lots of smaller effects. So you have this kind of bias towards, and that's what people want, right? We've talked about this right at the start. You have this bias towards big, exciting effects, but they might be completely illusory. So um, uh, all the kind of standard ways that people do this kind of research have been questioned. And that's what you're seeing now, not only larger samples with kind of internet collection of data, but also collaborations across different universities, people putting together samples and um, trying to do these um, many lab style experiments where you're, you're testing a central research question across lots of different labs, which I think is really, really positive and really excellent development. Um, but they're getting away from this thing that you describe where, you know, they're just these old school research techniques, which everyone thought were was, was absolutely fine. But we've realized, you know, since BEM and since uh, all these other things that happened, the whole priming thing, um, that we really need to do better.
2: And, you know, the, the whole fishing expedition that you describe in terms of data mining, I think, is especially tempting when it costs a lot of money to collect your data. And this is actually one of the reasons why I think that in the case of neuroimaging, particularly in functional MRI, which, you know, has exploded in terms of its popularity in cognitive neuroscience, at least, and also in how the media thinks about um, the, the the healthy brain. It's so tempting. You spend thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars scanning the brains of your participants and you don't necessarily find an effect, but then you think or 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 you get some hint of something else going on and so you continue to mine those data and as a result, you know, we we've now have a lot of problems especially when it comes to neuroimaging data and their interpretation because you know that there's a lot of subjectivity that gets inserted into this process.
3: Yeah, I mean it doesn't help that there are also Every every so often, there's a kind of new revelation of something in neuroimaging. Like uh, there was a big paper just a few weeks ago talking about the test retest reliability. So you measure the same thing twice uh, in terms of fMRI, and and uh, it doesn't look the same. The the test retest reliability was extremely low, and um, you know there were these statistical packages that had errors in them in their defaults that. I think one estimate was about 10% of papers were affected by this this problem where the default statistical package in fMRI had this uh, um, uh, fault, which, again, increased false positives. But yeah, and, and another thing just to add to what you said, another thing is that with a lot of these um, types of data collection, um, cognitive neuroimaging being one, but also, you know, when you look at fields like epidemiology, you look at some of these big samples that we get now. So we have the UK Biobank in, in, in the UK, where thousands and thousands of data points have been collected on every participant. You know, not only are there thousands of participants, but there's endless data on them too. What they've eaten, loads of different health measurements, loads of different questionnaires about every aspect of their life. And so the temptation is just to jump in and and, and find something that relates to something else. Um, and you can always, you know, uh, convince yourself, you know, you find some finding, you, th- you find some correlation between variable A and variable B. Um, uh, or probably variable A and variable H. By the time you've you've tested everything, um, you've tested it over and over again, um, and you can convince yourself that that was interesting. It was worth looking for, and that actually, in fact, you were kind of looking for that all along. And that's what a lot of the neuroimaging imaging stuff produces as well: is loads and loads and loads of different measures of the brain. Um, and so, if you're just testing, if you're just if you're just interested in, in in exploring the data, then you can find you can find anything. And and you know, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with exploring the data. And in fact, that's a really useful thing to do and to map out what's related to what is, again, a really important thing because it helps us, it helps future researchers come up with hypotheses, for one thing. But the problem is that it's not just that scientists kind of stumble around on fishing expeditions and kind of come up with with analyses uh, on the go. It's that they then write up those analyses as if they had planned them right from the start. That's the fundamental problem. It's this It's this uh, thing which is often described as like the exploratory research versus confirmatory research distinction. And again, there's debate about exactly what counts as confirmatory and exactly what counts as exploratory. But clearly, there's a difference between having everything planned out on one hand and just kind of just going along with the, letting the data lead you where they, where they do uh, on the other. Um, and I think the problem is when you do an exploratory fishing expedition and then claim to the world in your scientific paper that this was what you'd planned all along.
0: Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore.
1: But this tax-smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC.
2: So speaking of exploratory data in the biobank, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a paper that you published in Cerebral Cortex back in 2018 on sex differences in the adult human brain. Um, So um, this was you. So And I kind of want to talk about this because I feel like it's a good example of how open science should work. So you first did a preprint on bioarchive. Do you want to just walk us through like the process of sort of you know how how this study came to ultimately be published uh, in the way that it did, and sort of the steps that happened between.
3: Yeah, well, so I've started doing with this with every study now is, um, is is using preprints, and of course physicists and economists will you know hear of psychologists and neuroimaging people and all that. They'll they'll hear us talking about preprints and go, why are these people so excited? We've been doing this since literally. Well, physicists have been doing it since 1993. They've had Archive, the, 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 the pre-printing website, and economists have been uh, using working papers forever. But the idea is that you put up a version of your paper which is kind of almost ready for publication. You put it online and you um, make it available to the whole world to, 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 to read. Um, and in certain fields, that's been enormously useful and enormously um, increases the efficiency of the research because um, you can put up your... Say you've developed a new statistical technique or a new way to analyse the data... You can put it up online. People can start testing it out, start using it. The whole world can start checking whether it works. Um, uh, and then they can iron out any flaws in it way before it gets to final publication. Because, of course, if you just submitted it to a journal, nobody would see it for months. Nobody would see it for months or maybe even years um, before it appears in the journal. So in, in many fields, particularly in in in, uh, in genetics, actually, in, in my experience, um, also neuroimaging to some extent, um preprints have vastly accelerated the speed of doing scientific research. In our case, with this paper on, on, uh, on, on sex differences, which we thought would be an interesting thing to do because nobody at that point, I mean, it's, be, it's actually since been superseded by an even bigger paper by uh, Lara Wiranga and her colleagues. Um, but back then in 2018, or whenever it was, 2017 probably when I was doing the, doing the research, um, there had never been a study as big as that. So we're talking about 5,000 brain images of 5,000 people um, uh, just just mapping out just saying what are the differences between men and women let's try and uh, or people who say that they are men and women you know, report that on a, on a forum. Um, what are the differences uh, and, and, and let's just do a descriptive paper. it was actually quite quite interesting to do that because normally my papers are you know you're trying to test some hypothesis about how something relates to another thing and um, really in this case we're just saying we have a lot of data here. We've got this variable of sex which seems to you know um, uh, it's, it's a controversial topic of course but it's but it's one where um, this data can be you know fairly definitive on on answering the question so we just we just linked um, uh, 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 sex with lots of different structural brain images so not the functional stuff that we're talking about before. Um, uh, there was a, well there was a small amount of functional uh, stuff on the um, resting state connectivity but it wasn't a, an fMRI focused paper it was an MRI focused paper generally. And um, we put that up uh, when we'd run the study and we'd mapped all these uh, uh, relations between sex and the brain out. We put it up online as a preprint and two things happened. One positive and one worrying. So the first thing that was positive was um, loads of people uh, saw it on Twitter and um, maybe you know three or four, two or three people sent me emails saying, I've noticed this in Table One. Do you want to have it? Do you want to just check that that's correct? Um, do you think this is right? Maybe you should test this. Maybe you should have a look at that. So basically, we were getting peer review way before we'd ever even considered what journal to send it to. So that was really nice, and um, I, you know, I thank those people in the acknowledgement section. Now, um, uh, uh, I was extremely grateful for those. They were just, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts. Uh, coming up with uh, 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 some some pointers, so that's great. The slightly worrying thing was I also got journalists emailing me saying we'd like to write about your paper. Um, I, well, actually, it, they didn't say we'd like to write about your paper. They said we are going to write a story about your paper. Um, do, you, do you want to talk to us? And so I remember talking to a journalist, and I, I remember I remember, ha- I remember having a really really worrying about it. I'm thinking, what should I do? Because it's not peer reviewed. Um, it makes it clear on the website that it's not peer reviewed. I mean, it says at the top of the 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 preprint page you know n- nothing on this website is peer reviewed treat it as provisional you know um, but uh, uh, the, the the journalist had said to me I'm writing this story anyway so I thought at that point that the best option to do would be to would be to talk to the journalist to make sure that it was correct right that was my thinking at the time nowadays I might because I think journalists are more aware of the difference between preprints and 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 published research I think these days I might say to him. We'll wait until it's published before we talk, um, but it did sound as if he was just about to publish his article. So you know, we 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 published uh, the 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 uh, you know news of the study came out in uh, in a couple of places, and it was fine. Nothing was like massively misrepresented, and I think it did say in each of the articles, you know, this is a preprint that's not peer reviewed. And in our case, you know, when eventually it did get published in cerebral cortex, and it did get peer reviewed, and, and and so on, it didn't change much. I mean, the 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 broad Findings of the paper were not that different from the from what were in the preprint, but this, the 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 possibility was there that when our preprint met peer review, that someone would discover a major flaw in it, and 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 you know that's kind of what peer review is for, of course. And I know that I'm skeptical of peer review in general, but it's better than it's better than nothing. So I did have that kind of agonising thing of should I speak to this journalist about this? You know, uh, you know I don't know what your thoughts are on you know whether we should be publicizing this in 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 the press obviously we need to publicize it among scientists because of the first thing i mentioned because it's great to generate debate and discussion and get science moving and accelerating and so on but you know what should we do about journalists and of course now we're now we're in the world of COVID nineteen, where there's preprints, you know, being press released. In fact, by by some researchers, um, which is uh, clearly that's a, a, a the, the wrong thing to do because you haven't, you know, you haven't actually had the process of scientific scrutiny. But if a journalist comes calling, what what do you do? I I, I actually don't have a really good kind of set answer to that question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think. Uh... I think when it comes to preprints, I think as as long as you make the point that this is a preprint and it hasn't been peer reviewed, and you're okay with potentially, you know, being being scooped or some of the other negative fallout that can happen if you talk about your research before um, it's been published. You know, I, I think that's that's up to you. I think um, in this case, it was interesting to me because it got, you know, it came out of a time when it, there was this whole controversy about whether male and female, um, as people identify themselves, brains are the same or not, right? And, you know, it came out of the, uh, the and, and I think that the the press that your preprint got, to me, um, was really interesting, because people picked up on very different aspects of it. Some people highlighted the fact that you do find differences. And some people highlighted the fact actually fewer people. But, you know, both the preprint and your cerebral cortex paper, like, the you know, make a very clear statement that there is Lots of overlap. In fact, that that that's almost if when you look at all of your figures, that's the 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 pattern that jumps out at you, right? Is how much overlap there actually is.
3: I think the, in the common sort of um, perception of you know sex differences, people talk about. So here here's a term which I um, I, I actually am going to stop using, and, and I actually I had it in the original draft of the paper, and I removed it because I realized that everyone defines it differently. Um, is sexual dimorphism. You know, that comes up a lot in um, when you're when you're doing your, um, you know, you're reading the selfish gene and you're doing kind of sociobiology stuff. And I remember getting that in undergrad. And the example given is like elephant seals, where the male is vastly bigger than the female. And they're just like there's just there's just nothing, you know, nothing in in, in common. And birds, of course, where the females are brown and drab and the, the males are peacocks, you know, with the massive tails and all that. So there's clear, massive, huge differences, like they're almost in different categories. Um, like the way you would think about the genitals, like they're, they're, they're just different categories of things, although, of course, there are similarities, you know, in the kind of uh, development and so on. Um, but they're very, very, very different. Um, and people use the term sexual dimorphism to refer to the brain as well. But I think what those people are, are, the way they're defining sexual dimorphism is that there are there are differences, right? There are statistically significant, if you want to say that, or just, you know, moderately sized to large sized effects, sizes. That is, you know, the the distributions are not fully overlapping, right? That's what they mean. But I think when you when you learn the term sexual sexual dimorphism, um, you think of it in terms of two different categories of things altogether. Um, and so I actually I remember did, I did a little Twitter poll um, where I said, "What do you mean? Choose, choose which of these definitions you would use for sexual dimorphism." Um, you know, is it just that there's some degree of non-overlap, like th- th- you know th- there's just a small difference? as long as it's it's reliable and and you know it's statistically significant and um, does it have to be a large difference defined in some way or um kind of does it have to be that there's no overlap whatsoever and that they're completely different polls you know entirely different things and there were like of those three options a third of people voted for each one like th- there's no there's no agreement on um on, on what this term means. So I think there's a great deal of confusion about what we mean by that. And that's why I put that in the abstract that there's that there was a great deal of overlap on basically every single measure because even though there are large differences in some things, there's always overlap and it's not like these are two different categories of things whatsoever. Um and so the whole the whole um debate I think is is not helped by people using terminology in 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 ways which I, you know I think they know what they mean, but it's just not shared among the community. So I think that's a that's when we just have to take that term sexual dimorphism out the back and and just just deal with it and just get rid of it and start talking about, you know, and and start illustrating. I mean, that's what we what we tried to do in that paper is illustrate those differences by showing all those kind of those kind of um graphs of where the you know the male distribution and the female distribution kind of overlapped. So that's what we we just tried to be as transparent as possible about it.
2: And I just want to make sort of two small points. One is that it is important to study differences because the, we know that um, males and females react differently in terms of their susceptibility to different uh, you know, mental illnesses uh, and also to um, the drugs that we use to treat them and so forth. Um, but also that we can't, just because we find differences in the adult brain does not mean that those differences um, were not, at least in some part, yeah, you know, product of development or of sure. culture. Um, so you know, it's. That, I think. I think that's just. I just want to. Yeah. No. I make sure you agree. <laughs> agree. on both.
3: hundred percent agree awesome. on both those points, and you know, those both are points that are made in the paper. And yeah, um, uh, I, I, I I think it's yeah, it's extremely important to study this stuff. And in fact, there's kind of been a bit of a pushback in the neuroscience community against the idea of only studying one sex and treating males as if they are like the default, particularly in research on on mice. For instance, there's a huge tradition. Uh, if you look through the kind of the, the scientific literature, of only focusing on um, of only focusing on male mice, um, the, the idea being that females are like hormonal and so they change a lot, and so it's difficult to uh, it's difficult. You know that that might be a confounder in your experiment, but of course. Males are subject to hormonal differences as well, and in fact, it's especially in like dominance hierarchies, um, testosterone can 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 have effect on you know the way mice behave and, and and so on. So that's just not the correct way of thinking about things. And now, thing um, you know, funders like the NIH in the US um, now actually require you to use. You know both sexes of mice in your in your experiment that they fund, um, and there's been this move to ensure that people are actually looking at sex differences because you don't want to just have a whole biological uh, field of research that's only all its conclusions are, are for males, and then you know you want to try and apply those to to drug development for for you know um, drugs that are used in males and females. So it's a, it's an absurd uh, situation to get into. But yes, you're absolutely right. Not only Does it not mean that uh, you know if you find a brain difference, that does not mean that it's uh, somehow inbuilt or innate in 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 some sense? But it also doesn't mean anything about how those relate to psychological characteristics either, right? We're we're interested in how these things we how these things might be linked to differences in behavior or psychological traits, but it doesn't actually you know the mere fact that you found a, a a difference doesn't doesn't mean that it's related to differences, you know. So basically, what I'm saying is, we know that there are differences, but we don't know what their causes or their consequences are at this point, um, and and you know that's going to take a lot more research.
2: So I want to remind our listeners that Stuart's uh, book, Science Fiction's: How Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype Undermine the Search for Truth, is now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to sort of end with a question about diversity and how it relates to some of the thoughts that you have on on how science should move forward. So, you know, you, you suggest that really, whether it's journals or universities or granting organizations, that they should prioritize the most rigorous studies rather than the most flashy ones. And sometimes that makes me worried that it's just going to be more of the same in the sense that you have these principal investigators who have a lot of funding, who are able to do, you know, 25 experiments because they have these huge grants. And they're just going to continue to tick along on these little, you know, tiny, tiny improvements on their current body of work. Um, And that that, that actually makes it really hard for people who are trying to break in, whether they're people of color, or, you know, women, or just traditionally underrepresented groups who don't hold positions of that kind of level in labs currently. So I, I was ho- wondering if you could just kind of a- address that fear of mine and how you still, ha- how that might play into how you see the future of science moving forward.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very valid, sort of, or not necessarily criticism, but it's a valid thing to bring up at this at this point, because replication is one thing and making sure that we get our, you know, our findings replicated is, is, is kind of fundamental for having any confidence in in the findings that we that we discover. But of course, if you're just replicating something that's extremely boring or um, extremely uh, useless or, you know, wh- whatever it happens to be, uh, then that's not much use. You want to be, you know, making sure that you have enough replication, but also enough uh, space for new ideas to come in, uh, new people to come in, and, uh, and you don't want to just end up, as you say, just replicating minor variations of the same thing forever and ever. And, you know, I've seen critiques of... These replication uh, initiatives, where people have all you know banded together and across different labs to try and replicate a finding, because it's like you know, well, who who cares if you can fi- replicate that? I think that's a crap experiment. You know, why why would I want to replicate that? Um, and I think that's a that's a perfectly valid criticism of these replication attempts. Not uh, not that you're necessarily doing them, but that they should be expended on the things which we really think are advancing science in some way. So uh, that's a, that's a fair point, I think. Um, in terms of the funding. My uh, One of the suggestions that I make in the book, and it's not, you know, I didn't come up with this idea, but I, I find it an intriguing idea, is that instead of, um, it, it's particularly, as I say in the book, you know, particularly to ad- ad- address this issue of diversity and, and of kind of the old guard blocking, you know, sitting on all the, all, all the money, essentially, um, is that we introduce an element of randomness to the uh, grant funding situation. So instead of a situation that we have now, which is where everyone spends loads of time hyping up their their research and uh, people kind of know each other and know, uh, you know, people who work at the funders know the scientists a little bit and they kind of know who's who and they kind of have an idea of who's going to do what. And um, there's this kind of quite kind of cozy atmosphere in a, lot of, in a lot of cases. And as you say, there's this Matthew effect thing where those who already have continued to get more um, what this, you know, grant lottery idea would be is that you make sure that grant applications are are of a certain quality standard and you could set that standard quite high and you could make it include things like open science. You know, we will make this data available. We will use preprints. We will uh, collaborate with people, whatever it happens to be. You know, you could set your ideal level, minimal openness or whatever it is, minimal quality standards. Um, and then you just, uh, after that point, uh, Award the money by lottery in, in completely random, um, and and because it's been said that the current grant system is essentially a lottery because um, the peer reviewers of grants don't necessarily agree with each other on what uh, what research is 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 good, and in fact they're pretty poor at predicting which research will turn out to be the stuff that gets cited in future. It's essentially a lottery, but it doesn't have the 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 kind of advantage of really being a lottery and really being random, and so thus being you know. Uh, uh, that's thus removing these issues of um of of, uh, of kind of inertia in, in in the system and people sitting on big piles of money as you say so that i think would would go some way to addressing the 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 problem that you have uh there about the these ideas of, of kind of um you know more replication and, and and so on because i think it um it basically gives everyone a fair shake at uh, you know once they meet these standards that we all kind of agree and obviously saying scientists all agree on one thing is unrealistic to begin with but you know we would get to a point where we would have some kind of um, uh, minimal standard and then award the money by by lottery and there are, that's one idea I mean there are other ideas in the book about how we should change the way we think about funding but that's one potential way I think that would address the concern that you have there.
2: Yeah, and I think that's actually a really great idea. Um, there was a there's a nice episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, episode three in season five called The Powerball Revolution, uh, that actually talks about this exact uh, su- suggestion, because there's been evidence that, um, you know, the ranking system at the NIH is not effective at at predicting who's going to be the most cited. Um, and anyway, so if people are interested in learning more about that, they should also listen to that uh, episode. Well, Stuart Ritchie, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's really great to talk to you.
3: A great pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: If we're going to be true to the scientific method, we need to continue evaluate how we are using it, how we are applying it to the work that we do, and to ensure that we overcome our biases and remain objective, insofar as that's possible, given that we're human. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle, our longtime supporters. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week. More we see.
1: So much more the path to retirement is different for everyone. And as life changes, so do priorities. Fidelity can help you get where you want to go. With a free personalized plan, goal tracking, and timely insights, you'll be set to take on retirement. Whether you're saving for it or already living in it. Get started at fidelity.com slash take on. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE